0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the second webinar in our TOSCA 3030 series. In this series, we are discussing important changes to the Toxic Substances Control Act that took effect on June 22, 2016, and how EPA is implementing the new requirements for 30 minutes every 30 days. Today, we'll be talking about cleaning confidential business information and substantiation issues under the new Section 14. Special thanks for attending today's webinar, as I'm sure many of you stayed up to the wee hours watching the results of this unprecedented election. At this point, it's a bit early to tell exactly what the future holds under a Trump EPA, but it may present a new opportunity to develop workable rules and solutions for TOSCA implementation. And that's all we'll say about that. I am Adrian Timmel, and I've been an associate at Keller Heckman for seven years in the Environmental Practice Group. I specialize in regulatory compliance and enforcement matters with a focus on TOSCA and the Federal Pesticide Law, (FIFRA), as well as similar laws around the world. Joining me here today is Dr. Heather Avins. Heather has a background in chemical engineering and is a supervising health scientist with Cardinal ChemRisk. You can find our full bios on the Keller and Heckman and Cardino ChemRisk websites and contact us using the information on these slides. Today we'll be talking about the new Confidential Business Information Substantiation Requirements and Process. We'll also discuss the impact of reverse engineering and commercial and industrial intelligence on being able to claim CBI and protect this information from disclosure. We'll talk about how EPA is implementing the new requirements under Section 14 and what companies should do. Section 14 is dramatically different. It sets forth a detailed process for claiming CBI, substantiating it, EPA review, and appeals of EPA's decisions whether to grant protection of CBI. Substantiation is now required by law pursuant to rules EPA has or may promulgate. An EPA is required to review certain proportions of claims made. It also limits the time period for protection and provides numerous exceptions which allow EPA to disclose otherwise protected information for certain law enforcement purposes or to respond to human exposures and environmental releases. In essence, it requires one to do more to protect potentially less CBI and reduces the agency's discretion in reviewing claims and making determinations. The basic process for protecting CBI is to first assert a CBI claim and certification concurrent with the underlying filing. Second, you must provide substantiation and recertify as to the truth and correctness of the information in accordance with rules EPA has or may promulgate. The statute is not entirely clear on when substantiation must be submitted to EPA. Because EPA has not yet promulgated any new CBI rules, right now we continue to operate under the existing and somewhat limited provisions of 40 CFR Parts 2, which includes EPA's general CBI regulations across all of the statutes it administers, and Part 700 through 799, which are the TOFCA regulations. These regulations require upfront substantiation only for certain claims, such as chemical identity and notices of commencement, and certain claims and reports submitted under the chemical data reporting rule of Section 8. Otherwise, at this moment, it appears one does not need to submit substantiation to EPA until specifically requested. That said, and as we'll discuss in one moment, one should always verify CBI claims are valid and be prepared to defend them. The statute does set forth certain exceptions for information that does not require substantiation at Section 14C2, but this is not the focus of this presentation. The only thing we'll say about these exceptions is that one must still assert a claim for CBI and submit the accompanying certification statement at the time of filing, even though substantiation is not required. Section 14 now requires EPA to review certain claims within 90 days. Specifically, 100% of all chemical identity CBI claims are subject to EPA review within 90 days. And at least 25% of all other CBI claims are subject to EPA review within this time frame. EPA's current approach to implementing this 25% requirement is to request substantiation for every fourth filing submitted to EPA under TOSCA that contains CBI, so that it can make a determination on these claims. This may be something that uh, is subject to change in the future, and could be worth commenting on to the agency as to the approach. I should also note that the 25% is supposed to be a representative subset, um, and EPA may need to further tailor its approach to uh, comply with that representative requirement. Finally, the statute limits protection to 10 years with an opportunity for unlimited extension so long as you can still substantiate these claims at those later dates. One of the major new requirements of Section 14 is that a certification statement by an authorized official must accompany all CBI claims. The authorized official must certify that the company has taken reasonable measures to protect CBI, that he or she has determined the information is not required to be disclosed to the public under any other federal law, that he or she has a reasonable basis to conclude that disclosure is likely to cause substantial competitive harm and that the authorized official has a reasonable basis to believe that the information is not readily discoverable through reverse engineering. The implications of this statement are significant. Knowing and willful misrepresentations to the government are subject to criminal penalty under the Federal False Statements Act. This also means that the days of reflexively asserting a CDI claim with the filing and worrying about whether you can substantiate the claim later are over. Every company needs to verify that the claim is valid and that the information meets these requirements before making a CDI claim. To do so, an authorized official may need input from legal, business, and technical teams to verify that the claims are not excessive and can be fully substantiated. An authorized official is someone authorized to act on behalf of the company, and this is typically a business or regulatory manager. Now that we have walked through the basic process for claiming and substantiating CDI, Heather will show us how competitors can use different pieces of information to reverse engineer CBI. This is important in thinking about what information to claim as confidential and in certifying that information is not readily discoverable through reverse engineering.
1: Thanks, Adrienne. Um, yeah, with the EPA's new requirements, it really necess- necessitates a, a better understanding of reverse engineering and what the capabilities are of reverse engineering. Um, I think the the first thing to focus on regarding reverse engineering is to understand how it can be used to determine the identity of uh, the chemical that you're concerned with. Um, I've outlined here the four basic steps that are undertaken in the process of reverse engineering for chemical identity. Um, The first step is an initial analysis. This would be some simple spectroscopic methods that are used just to get an initial idea of what the substance is and what further steps and further analyses will be needed. Um, The next step is if if your substance that you're working with is a multi-phase substance, then it will be necessary to perform a phase separation. So for example, if you're working with an emulsion or if it's something that has a solid um, suspended in a liquid, um, it'll be necessary to separate those phases, which can be done by methods such as centrifugation or filtration. Um, and then if, you're, if your substance is a chemical mixture, then somebody who's doing reverse engineering will have to figure out how to separate that chemical mixture into um, separate distinct chemicals before they're analyzed. And so that would typically be done by uh, a variety of different chromata- chroma- chromatography methods can be employed for that or other methods such as distillation as well. Um, And then once the chemicals are separated, um, it's necessary to analyze them to try to figure out what their uh, chemical identity is. And uh, there's a whole suite of different spectroscopic methods that can be used for this as well as some thermal analytical uh, techniques as well. Really, because of there's so much variety in, in ways that you can get at this question, it can be quite a time-consuming and um, expensive process to undertake. Um, and so looking at and considering these four basic phases for how reverse engineering is done to identify chemical identity really helps um, with an understanding of what makes a chemical substance more or less likely to be readily reverse-engineered. So, for example, multi phase substances will be more difficult because there's that added step of having to develop a process for separating the phases. Chemical mixtures will be more difficult because um, the person doing the reverse engineering will have to develop methods that can effectively separate the chemicals. Um, and then for the, the fourth step, for the analytical step, if there's aspects of your um, substance, if you have a substance as a mixture, if some of those um, components are present at low quantity, um, that can be an added challenge for reverse engineering um, because they may be present at such a low concentration that they're hard to detect and hard to quantify. And then another important thing to understand about analytical testing is that for the spectroscopic methods, especially, um, after the substance has gone, has had the spectra taken. It's then compared to a whole library of spectra for existing known chemicals. And so if your chemical is very similar to in structure to one that's already in one of these libraries, that will help make it easier for that uh, chemical identity to be determined. And so um, really with keeping in mind all of these different um, aspects of how reverse engineering is done for chemical identity, that can help you understand the likelihood with which your chemical can be um, readily reverse engineered.
0: Heather, your examples of substances that are more difficult to reverse engineer are really important because of the statutory language. The certification statement requires one to have a reasonable basis to believe that the information is not readily discoverable through reverse engineering. Although the EPA has not issued guidance on this, it would seem that these types of substances would meet that criteria. And what one can do is demonstrate the difficulty one would have in trying to reverse engineer them if required to submit a substantiation response using these uh, different techniques that you talked about.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the EPA doesn't clearly say what counts as readily and what doesn't count as readily, um, but, you know, the additional analyses and different steps that you have to go through all require extra time, extra money. Um, you know, if, if you're having to go through the full suite of all possible um, spectrometry or, and thermal analytical techniques, the, the price is going to go up. And then there's also a give and take on the price and time related to the accuracy and uh, the sensitivity that, that someone is trying to achieve with their reverse engineering as well. Um, So in addition to um, the idea of reverse engineering chemical identity, reverse engineering can also be used for um, trying to figure out the process by which a chemical is manufactured. Um, And so regardless of whether your chemical identity itself is something that you want to keep confidential, you very likely will want to keep your manufacturing process confidential. Um, And unfortunately, there's not as straightforward of a um, laid-out process, a systematic process for how reverse engineering can be done for um, determining manufacturing processes. Um, but what we, And this is because each process for manufacturing will be so unique. Um, but really, the thing that is common among all considerations for reverse engineering of processes is that the first thing you need to do is to really dig deep to figure out what are the already public aspects of your chemical process, and how similar is your process to existing processes, and then figure out what are those unique details that are really key for you to to protect and make sure nobody can figure out. Um, So once you have all this information in hand, it's necessary then to step back and look at the big picture and try to think about how someone could connect the dots between what's publicly available already um, and what is potentially going to be revealed from your submission in order to get to that key information that you're trying to protect. Um, So I know everyone would uh, probably readily understand and recognize, well, I don't want to reveal what my uh, reactants are for my process. I don't want to reveal what my process equipment is. I don't want to reveal my processing conditions. And that's all very straightforward. And I think a lot of you would also understand and suspect, and rightly so, that you also don't want to reveal the constituents that are in your waste streams or what the absolute or even the relative amounts of those constituents are in your waste streams, because it is true uh, that with that information, someone can reverse engineer to find out information about your parent chemical, and also they can uh, figure out a certain amount of information about your process as well. Um, along those similar lines related to waste and emissions, um, information that you put on your submission re- regarding emissions and uh, wastewater could also be revealing information that you want to keep confidential. For example, um, if you're indicating that you don't need a control technology for a certain waste stream, whereas other people doing a similar process probably would, that might reveal something about how you're handling your byproducts or how you've modified your process to have different byproducts that aren't of concern for emissions. Um, Or alternatively, if you are reporting that you have a control technology that has a very high efficiency, that could be revealing that you're using a novel control method that your competitors weren't previously aware that you had that capability. Um, And then it's similar for wastewater treatment. If you're revealing where that wastewater is destined to go, that can reveal a certain amount about what may be in your wastewater and also um, what type of novel wastewater cleaning methods you may have developed on site. Now, those were some some pretty straightforward examples, um, but I want to just raise the awareness that. Uh, It's important to also try to look for situations that are a little less intuitive. So, for example, um, if you're revealing something about protective equipment needed at a certain step within your process, that itself could hint at the potential chemical identity of your reactants at that point or the byproducts. Um, Or it could hint at the reaction rate. Maybe it's known that there's a a potential chemical of concern involved at a certain point, but you wouldn't actually need protective equipment unless you were at a certain um, process volume. Um, And then another example I can think of that's a little less intuitive has to do with site location. Um, If you're revealing your site of your process, and somebody can dig through the publicly available information and figure out, oh, well, this has this site has previously been identified to have this certain processing equipment or has uh, been previously identified to have re- the release of these certain chemicals, that could allow someone to get those extra pieces of information that help them figure out what exactly is going on in your process. And even something as simple as the technical contact person. Um, you want to think, well, is this someone who, if you Googled their name, you would immediately come up with a few publications or, or their CV or maybe even their, their graduate thesis that describes um, a chemistry that's very similar to what you're using or maybe exactly the same as what you're using in your process. Um, so these are all examples of, of how it's really important to take a big picture view of um, what could be done with reverse engineering for your chemical process. And uh, as you can probably guess, this is something that you want to spend some time with. You don't want to have to rush it. It's good to start sooner than later. And as Adrian will discuss next, um, EPA is already starting to request substantiation to document CVI claims.
0: Thanks, Heather. So EPA has already started issuing a flurry of substantiation requests, as some of you uh, probably know all too well. So far, these have applied to all types of Section 5 notices, including, of course, pre-manufacture notices, but also low volume exemptions and bona fide requests. Uh, for those of you who might not know, bona fide is a request that companies can submit to EPA if they're going to manufacture or import a substance to check whether it is on the confidential inventory. EPA has also asked for substantiation to support claims made in 2016 chemical data reports and in 12B export notifications, which are pretty administrative. So it's uh, using this authority and selecting every fourth submission, having confidential business information claims, and issuing these substantiation requests now, and has been doing so for several weeks um, in, in response to its mandate under Section 14. EPA is requesting a response to its substantiation requests, within 15 working days, which can be a really tight turnaround if it is a large-volume filing, if it requires input from multiple people with different expertise, and or if multiple levels of review are required. The EPA letters have typically had a blue cover page, which is marked confidential and is date stamped. And the picture on this slide is exactly uh, what you would be looking for in the mail um, to know if you've gotten a substantiation request. It is important to note that the substantiation response is not due within 15 days of the date of the letter, um, but instead the clock starts ticking the day the company received the letter. So it is critical to know when the company first received the request, which EPA has been sending through certified mail. EPA has told us that if one wants a formal extension and must submit a request with the basis for the extension, and certain other information to the Office of General Counsel. So these requests are not necessarily something they take lightly and do have to go through the lawyers. Uh, The EPA substantiation request letters also indicate that extensions are unlikely to be approved. And this is likely a result of the 90-day review deadline the statute imposes on EPA for a certain proportion of the CBI claims. um, Because it needs to issue the substantiation request, uh, then get the response back from the submitter and review it, um, the 15 working days is what they're interpreting as a reasonable time within this 90-day period to get this information back to them so they can make a decision. The EPA letter also states that its CBI decision will be final, which could potentially impact FOIA requests and other, reason, um, and other uh, disclosure uh, opportunities at a later date. This means that substantiation submitted in response to these EPA letters could be your last shot to protecting the information and should be treated extremely carefully as such. To substantiate a claim, EPA is requiring a company to answer 11 questions with specificity and 15 questions for CBI within health and safety filings. The instructions direct the company to answer the full set of questions item or class of information, which can result in a really lengthy response. Um, and sometimes that response can seem somewhat, uh, somewhat repetitive for the different classes of information, but for certain nuances. You are also supposed to reference each page, paragraph, and sentence where CBI appears, which again can be really burdensome in lengthy studies or CDR filings that cover numerous chemicals. CBI bracketing also needs to be inserted around CBI in the underlying filing, if you haven't already done that, and in the substantiation response itself. Competitors could theoretically FOIA the substantiation response, so you want to make sure to include the bracketed and redacted versions of that in your response package. So there's multiple levels of uh, CBI going on here. We've developed ways to categorize and reference information to reduce the effort required to submit substantiation responses to EPA, um, and are happy to help with this this type of approach. Right now, EPA's electronic filing system is not set up to receive substantiation responses, so they must be submitted by mail or hand delivery. And we always recommend getting some type of delivery receipt. And the picture on the left is an example of an official EPA date-stamped courier receipt, uh, which is good to keep in the company's files in case there's some sort of a disclosure issue later on in time. Now Heather and I will offer some pointers on how to protect information under these new
1: standards. Great. Thanks, Adrian. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, really the first important step to undertake is to dig deep into the publicly available inf- information to figure out what's already um, public- publicly accessible regarding your process and your chemical. And then um, identify what are those key pieces of information about your process that are critical to protect. And then really think outside of the box to make sure that you're identifying all of the important CBI that you need, all the important details that you need to um, claim a CBI so that you're not accidentally disclosing or making uh, a situation where people can figure out uh, key CBI and uh, have that be revealed by some non-obvious routes.
0: Using the techniques Heather discussed, you should determine what information can be substantiated as truly confidential prior to asserting a CBI claim, and avoid frivolous or excess claims that could undermine the company's position. If required by EPA, a substantiation response should include detailed explanations to support claims. These responses should be unique by including company, chemical process, and or use-specific information. Finally, it's critical not to wait until day 15 as the company risks waiving its claim. Companies should be implementing systems now to address EPA substantiation requests early in the process. The mail room should document when the EPA request is received and forward it to the appropriate person immediately. And the person managing the response should ask questions early on by contacting the legal, technical, and business teams as appropriate. Thank you again for tuning in. We'll try to follow up with any questions uh, that you submit during the, um, when we post the link to the webinar. Our next Tuska 3030 will be held on Wednesday, December 14th. You should stay tuned for the topic announcement that usually goes out about a week before the webinar. Please let us know how you felt about the topic coverage during this webinar and your interest in future topics by taking the survey at the end of the webinar. And please don't forget to tell your colleagues and business partners about this series and share the registration link with them. Finally, we are excited to announce our upcoming TOSCA Implementation and Reform Seminar next January with Cardinal Trim risk in Houston, Texas. We will, in much, we will be talking in much greater detail about strategic implications of the changes in the law, as well as day-to-day practical issues and tips. Be on the lookout for more information, including the official Save the Date and Agenda, in the coming weeks. And thank you again for your time today. Take care.